0: Father, as we have been learning these last few weeks, we want to be people who are doers of your word and not merely hearers who are self-deceived. Even as we heard uh, these last couple of Sundays, we should be people who are applying the word in the context of serving one another and the testimonies even today, Lord. We want to lift up your name by the way that we practice the one another's, by the way that we care for one another, we love one another. And even this morning, we want to look at an issue that we can certainly grow in, in the way that we love one another and we care for one another and serve one another. And it is this issue of a controlled tongue. I pray, Father, that you would convict us, that you would challenge us, that you would help us to look at your word and walk away changed by the power of your spirit and the guidance of your holy word. And we ask you all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, turn your Bibles to James chapter 3, James 3, and we're going to be looking, uh, zeroing in on the first six verses of James chapter 3. We're going to allude to the opening 12 verses of this chapter, but really fixing our attention on the first six verses. Growing up, uh, you probably all heard and memorized and even used some of the popular, quirky, elementary or junior high school sayings. Uh, Depending on the time that you grew up, you would have maybe heard things like this. When you wanted to affirm somebody for something that they did, you might say, Dude, that is cool. That is cool. Or that is fresh. Or that's rad. Right? I know that some of that precedes some of you or or was after some of you. Right? Um, You had your own, I'm sure, whenever you grew up. Um, There were also popular ones, popular phrases growing up that I remember when uh, you would get into a scuffle with somebody and they were trying to get under your skin, the typical thing that you would say was, I know you are, but what am I? <laughs> Anybody heard that? I heard that all the time, and I used it too. You know, and then the other person would say, I know you are, but what am I? I know you are, and they would go back and forth and back and forth with each other. One other popular saying that maybe was the most prevalent for me growing up was uh, one that I, I heard where people, when they would get into um, scuffles with one another, in order to communicate to that other person that their words were like water off your back, you would say something like this, sticks and stones will break my bones, say it with me, but words will never hurt me. Sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Na, 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 you know, that kind of a thing. That was a classic And it was commonly used by those who wanted to communicate to somebody else who was being mean to them that their words didn't affect them. It was no big deal, no harm done. Your words are like water off my back. But over the years, I'm sure that you and I have come to realize as we live life more and more, we realize that this kind of statement simply isn't true, is it? Far from harmless, words can be very, very dangerous. A while back, I read the story of a young lady um, at a California high school who attended a party on a particular weekend. And at this party, there were things that happened that she was unaware of and pictures that were taken that she was unaware of. And for the next couple of weeks at school, these things were circulating all around the school and mean things were being said about her. And even after repeated attempts by her and others to knock it off to some of these kids that they needed to stop speaking viciously about her like that, this young lady committed suicide. Words are not cheap, are they? Words mean something. And we cannot think of examples of how words have caused harm in our lives. For some people, they may have grown up in an environment where maybe parents were uh, hateful, And they were always tearing their kids down or tearing you down. And maybe you remember how you were told constantly, explicitly or implicitly about how worthless you were. And those kinds of things leave an indelible mark upon our lives, do they not? Words are not easy to overcome. Sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me? I don't think so. I don't think so. The truth is, words do hurt, right? Words do hurt. Words can leave a huge imprint upon people, positive or negative. And people, beloved, don't realize that an uncontrolled tongue can cause a lot, a lot of damage. We have to be so careful. Even as Christians, we can struggle with controlling our tongue. We can struggle with our speech. Even in the church, many of us never learn our lesson that what comes out of our mouths can damage a community of believers. And unfortunately, we fall prey to believing that the Lord Jesus somehow overlooks these kinds of things. That He doesn't really care about what we are, what we are saying in our actions as much as, as much as He should. We tend to think that because we're saved and we're secure in Christ, that somehow that assurance, we're assured in our salvation, and it doesn't really matter as much to Him how we speak or how we act. But that couldn't be farther from the truth. Jesus said in Matthew 12, verse 36, But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Jesus tells us that people will be accountable for their words. We may think that Christ overlooks our words, but that is far, far from the truth. We see warnings against the sinful use of the tongue in many places in Scripture. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 says this, There are six things which the Lord hates, Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil. A false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife amongst brothers. That passage, beloved, and many other passages highlight the fact that God is very concerned how his creatures use their speech. How we speak, and in this section, James, consistent with the teaching of our Lord, teaches that how a man uses his tongue really reveals the stability of his faith as well as his inner nature. For as Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth what speaks while the power of speech is one of the greatest gifts given to mankind. Believers must be on guard that their words are used for good and not for evil. And so in this passage, beloved, James 3, 1 through 12, and specifically as we focus in the opening six verses, we are admonished to practice self-control with regards to our speech, what comes out of our mouths. And there are a couple of reasons here for practicing self-control and the use of our tongues that I want to highlight. And then I want to draw out some pla- practical implications for us from this particular passage in these opening verses. First of all, we must practice self-control because how you use your words is a matter of utmost urgency. Practice self-control because how you use your words is a matter of utmost urgency. And it is urgent first and foremost, these are subpoints, because you will be held accountable for your words. You will be held accountable for your words. James, first of all, directs this warning specifically to those who are and who aspire to be teachers in verse one. Notice what he says here. In verse one, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. So while the office of a teacher is a great honor and a privilege, James warns against our tendency to run to this responsibility without counting the cost. While there are many who will assume the office of teacher in a church, James says not many should. Not many should. There were many who were trained and recognized as teachers. But the exhortation is not limited only to those who were trained, but also to any desiring a teaching ministry in the church. But notice the weight of the warning is given next. They are not to be hasty to be teachers, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Notice that something is coming in the future. Now remember, James is writing to brethren here who teach or aspire to teach. Brethren, believers, and it is true that believers will be not will not be judged salvifically, if you want to put it that way. That we will get to the end and face God, and then we'll be, it'll be determined whether we were saved or not. We can experience assurance in our salvation in the present. Amen. We are secure in Christ. There is nothing that we have done to be accepted before God. We needed an alien righteousness outside of ourselves. The righteousness of Christ. His life, His death, and His resurrection, His ascension. Imputed to our account. One day we will be raised with Him. Amen? We are secure in that. We cannot lose that. Once saved, always saved. In fact, Romans 8 1 says this, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in an intimate, love-bond relationship with Christ and you're trusting in Him and Him alone, not your works for your salvation, there is no condemnation for you at all. Romans 8.35 says this, that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. And he gives a list of things there that don't separate us from the love of Christ. If you are a believer, you are secure in Christ, beloved. You are protected by the mighty hand of God. Amen? But even so, even so, every believer will be judged on the impact of your life, on the fruitfulness of your life, how you stewarded the gifts and the talents that God gave you. And that is a solemn reality for us. Romans chapter 14, verse 10 says this, we will all, he's writing to believers, believers, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And in that same passage, he says, Each of us will give an account of himself to God. Paul is writing to Christians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Why? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So even Christians will give an account for their fruitfulness. But James tells us here that those who are teachers will incur a stricter judgment. Implied in there is the fact that we will all face judgment. In terms of the fruitfulness of our lives, how we stewarded the gifts and the abilities that God gave us, whether we use them for the glory of God or not. And it is not that God was going to say at that point, oh, you weren't saved after all. No. If you are saved, you will, baby steps or big steps, flesh out the works that God has prepared beforehand that you should walk in. Amen? You will do that. But James says, teachers face a stricter judgment because with greater influence comes increased responsibility. Greater accountability. And I don't know about you, but standing before God someday to give an account for my spiritual fruitfulness is a huge motivation to take special care with how I use my words as well. And we all fail in that. We will see that right now. We will have to answer to God for our lives, including the words and the effects that our words have upon others, beloved. I used to be so scared when my parents would leave me with a babysitter, whether it was a family member or another non-family member growing up. Because we'd stay there, and I was always a kid that used to get into trouble. And the babysitter would inevitably at one point say, You know what? When your mom and dad gets here, man, I'm going to tell them everything that you did. I I'd get scared. You wonder why I didn't get scared enough to not get into trouble the next time, right? But I get scared. I didn't want to face my mom and dad. I had this sickening feeling in my tummy, knowing that when they came, they would even sometimes wake me up to confront me on what I did. So I try to go to bed at 8 p.m., but that wouldn't work. How infinitely more disturbing, beloved, and more solemn and serious. That one day we will face our Heavenly Father and we will have to answer for our lives, including our words. How solemn is that? And James wants us to know that this is why it is of utmost importance that we practice self-control. Because we will be accountable for our words. I don't know what that looks like. I can't quantify it or qualify it for you. But I know that we will be accountable. But also because controlling your tongue is evidence of your spiritual maturity. Controlling your tongue is evidence of your spiritual maturity. James wants them to pay attention to this issue because it reveals where they are at spiritually. And I want you to see this in the middle of verse 2. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. This word perfect here can, can mean either literal perfection or maturity. I think the context indicates for us what the preferred meaning is. James has just said matter-of-factly that we all stumble in many ways. Meaning that no one is perfect, no one can achieve perfection. So I don't think that James is referring here to sinlessness, but to spiritual maturity. The spiritual maturity. And what James is saying is, the person who is able to control his tongue, his or her speech, is the person who can be said to be spiritually mature. Whose faith is stable. How well, beloved, you and I control our tongues indicates in an important way how spiritually mature we really are. It is interesting that when you're sick and you visit the doctor... One of the first things that the nurse wants you to do is is open your mouth. Ah, open up. I want to see your tongue. I want to see your throat. Why do they want to do that? Because that's the way that they can get a gauge one way for what is wrong or how sick you really are. It is an indicator of your health. In the same way, in the spiritual realm... Your tongue, your speech, your words are the barometer of your heart, a test of your spiritual maturity. Jesus said in Matthew 12, The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The heart is the true you, the real you, no matter what we see on the outside. So, you want a good gauge, beloved, for how wise and mature you are in the faith. A good gauge. What consistently comes out of your mouth? How is your speech? Because James says, if you're able to control the tongue, then you're able to bridle the whole body as well. Why? Because your words are indicative of your heart. So if you can control your words, and you're dealing with your heart, then the rest of your body will follow. In obedience. Your words... And your actions are indicative of what's coming and flowing forth from your heart. Scary thought, huh? Scary thought. But this is where the battle lies. The tongue is so slippery, isn't it? Literally. And in practice, it is difficult to control and keep in check. This is why verse 7, look there says this for every species of beasts and birds of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. It is hard to control. It is hard to keep in check. Even great elephants and great whales can be trained and tamed and kept in check and taught Even ferocious animals like lions and tigers can be tamed and trained and taught. Even slithering snakes can be trained and taught. But, James says, no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. So practicing self-control, beloved, is an urgent matter for the believer. Because you and I will be held accountable for our words. And how we use our words reveals our spiritual maturity as well. And the stability of our faith. But I want you to notice also that we practice self-control because our words can have great influence for the good or the bad. Our words can have great influence for the good or the bad. And James is a master illustrator. Best illustrator. Because he's the half-brother of Jesus who was the master illustrator, right? Right? And he uses here, to highlight the influence our our, our words can have, he uses three illustrations in verses 3 through 6. The first two illustrations in verses 3 through first part of uh, verse 5 are really neutral to simply show the impact that our words can have. But the third illustration, fire, in the latter part of verse 5, highlights the negative, destructive influence that the tongue can have. How influential is the tongue? James says, it is like the horse and the bit. Notice verse 3. Now if we put the bits into the horse's mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Think about a horse. Think about the power of these animals. In movies, they are a symbol of bravery, of speed, of power. So agile. Seems like they can do anything. Think of a great shire stallion. Six to seven feet high. Mighty to carry tons of material. And the heaviest riders. And still travel at rapid speeds. Powerful animals are these horses. And yet... This mighty horse, a symbol of power and endurance, is untamable. were it not for this little piece of equipment called a bit. Which is made of metal or synthetic material and goes into their ma- the mouth of the horse. It is the only way that the rider can really control this horse. Relative to the size of the horse, this thing is so small. Small piece of equipment. But without this small piece of equipment, the rider simply cannot control or direct this powerful horse. Well, James says, in like manner, the tongue has the power to influence the rest of the body, though relatively small. That's how influential it is. How influential is the tongue, James? It is like the ship and the rudder, he says. Notice verse 4. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. In those days, there were these great large ships who could still carry over 200 people, over 200 passengers. And on top of that merchandise or product for trading purposes, the larger ships were large, powerful vessels driven by the winds, the strong winds. But as large and powerful as these ships were, there was one relatively small part of the ship which directed the whole ship, the rudder. The rudder. A flat piece of wood, metal, or plastic hinged vertically near the stern of a boat or ship for steering purposes. And compared to the rest of the ship, this rudder was very small. In fact, James uses these words, these descriptive terms called superlatives to describe this rudder. Very small rudder to highlight this huge contrast between this little rudder in comparison to this huge vessel. And his point is that if the pilot had control of the small rudder, he had control of the ship's direction. So in like manner... What James is saying is, though relatively small, the steering by the pilot of this small rudder determines the direction of this large, powerful vessel and not even the strong winds themselves. And here is James's application based upon the first two illustrations in the first part of verse 5. Notice there. So also the tongue is a small part of the body and yet it boasts of great things. In other words, just as in the same way that this, this small, puny bit controls a powerful horse, and just in the same way that this very small rudder guides the large ship, so the tongue, beloved, has great influence. Great influence. The tongue is a tyrant. It is a great conqueror, this little tongue. It has great influence upon the whole person. Just stop and think, stop and think about the great, most influential speeches in all of history. Do you remember Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech? Massive impact, massive impact, given from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial during the March on Washington, where Martin Luther King Jr. gave his his vision of American racial harmony. Massive impact during the Civil Rights Movement. Think of Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. In 1863, Lincoln, at the site of one of Civil War's critical battles, he dedicated a cemetery to Gettysburg's fallen soldiers, and he exhorted his audience to pay tribute to these men who had given their lives for principles such as liberty and equality. You know how long that address was? Less than three minutes Massive impact. One of the top 10 messages of all time, speeches of all time. That's the power of words. The power of a speech. Winston Churchill's speech, blood, toil, tears, and sweat. Given in 1940, his first speech as Britain's prime minister. It was a war cry against Nazi Germany. And in there, it said this, quote, "'You ask, what is our policy?' I can say it is to wage war by sea, land, air, with all our might and with all the strength that God can give us, to wage war against a monstrous enemy, tyranny, never surpassed in the dark, lamentable catalog of human crime. That is our policy, end quote. Powerful words against Nazi Germany. Powerful, influential, speeches, coming at the perfect time for maximum impact. That, beloved, is the power of words. Words can have great influence for the good. But just the same, words can also be destructive in influence, right? Destructive. Adolf Hitler gave many speeches that propelled his people to massacre Jews and massacre many other people. How did he influence this type of massacring? He did it through the use of his tongue, through the use of his words. Manifesting his wicked, corrupt heart. And this is why James points out next with this third illustration of the fire. He uses this illustration to highlight the destructive influence. The destructive influence that our tongues can have. How influential is the tongue, James? And this time with a destructive impact. Look at the middle of verse 5. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. The very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body. And sets on fire the course of our life. And is set on fire by hell. Through this third illustration of fire now. James calls attention to the destructive influence of the tongue. Think about fire, such a useful tool, can be used to warm a human's body for cooking and heating food. One element of being able to make machines run, many good uses for fire. And yet, if left unchecked with no parameters, used for the wrong reasons, fire can have devastating effects, right? Devastating effects, The same fire that can be used to warm up a baby's formula is the same fire as I heard in the news a few years ago that when that little baby becomes a toddler, burns that little baby with third-degree burns. When that fire is left unattended and unchecked. Fire can have devastating effects if used for the wrong reasons. I read a few years ago of a devastating Southern California fire Ruined many people's lives from a human perspective, damaged many homes, stole the livelihood of many people. And would you believe the cause? Some kid who decided just for fun to light a match and see what it would do, causing massive destruction. James expands upon this illustration of fire. And shows the horrific character of an uncontrolled tongue. He's likening an uncontrolled tongue to an uncontrolled fire. And notice he describes the tongue in verse 6 as a fire. The very world of iniquity he says. I'll tell you what. You don't need to travel the world to discover the vastness of sin. Okay? You don't need to do that. The evil of the cosmos, beloved, is concentrated in our tongues. What sins have the words of men not been active participants in? Sexual immorality, impurity, idolatry, hatred, slander, division, jealousy, outbursts of anger and rage, dissensions, factions in the church. Our tongues have been involved in all of those sins and then some. Just imagine for a moment, the rest of this day, how much filth God will hear coming out of your mouth, silently or loudly. Gossip, filth, immorality, lies, hatred expressed toward other people. The tongue, beloved, plays a key role in all of the sins of the whole world. It is the very world of iniquity. But he also says that the tongue has great influence upon the individual. And that it is the member who has the power to stain or defile the entire body. In other words, it's able to damage the whole person. And what is the span of the tongue's destructive impact? Look at verse 6. An uncontrolled tongue sets on fire the course of life. What is he talking about? This is referring to the social impact of the tongue. It affects relationships, communities, our nation. Everywhere you look in our society, there is a, there is a fire in the sense of corruption in, this, in, the, in terms of words being spoken. All you have to do is turn on the news to become aware of hateful speech by various people and murder due to hateful hearts who were driven to hateful speech. Vain words of politicians and political candidates line with their tongues about what they're going to do for the people if they're selected to office. Line, line, line. The tongue's sinful impact spans all of life our society, our marriages, our parenting, politics, education, and so forth and so forth. In some. What James is saying is that the tongue, though small in proportion, has the power to destroy a whole person and impact every human dynamic and institution it comes into contact with. It is a dangerous weapon, our tongue, because it reflects our hearts and the wickedness of our hearts. And notice the source of the tongue's fuel. In verse 6, it is set on fire by hell. Gehenna. James uses this term to point to the origin of the tongue's destructive nature. All too often, an uncontrolled tongue is a powerful tool, beloved, of Satan to bring misery and pain to the believer's life. It's not that we are not at fault for the things that come out of our mouth and Satan is to be held responsible. It's that Satan uses our words coming from corrupt and sinful hearts to cause much pain and destruction and damage. And we've all seen it. I mean, wasn't it in in Genesis chapter 3 that Satan's words and his twisting of God's precious words were what plunged humanity into destructive sin? Think about that. Satan is a liar and the father of lies. And God's people must not be imitators of Satan, beloved, but truth tellers. Because we have been redeemed and washed by the blood of the Lamb. This is why the the gospel of Christ is so mighty. Because it is only Christ's work on the cross that is able to turn Satan's destructive words and subsequent sin around. Jesus in the gospel is able to forgive us of our sins, give us a new transformed heart so that love And holiness and purity and edifying words can flow from our hearts, beloved. As we fill our minds and we renew our minds by means of his word. That is the power of the gospel. It is able to solve the volcano of the human wicked heart. It is able to do that. And as God's redeemed people, we must be characterized by speaking the truth in love, beloved. So that others may be edified, built up rather than torn down. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 4, Speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. He's speaking to the church, to those who are in Christ. We are a family. We are one living organism. And we are to be speaking the truth in love to one another, building one another up, edifying one another. That is what is to characterize the Christian community. Not slander or destructive speech. The Proverbs have so much to say about destructive words. Proverbs 16:27. A worthless man digs up evil while his words are like scorching fire. A perverse man spreads strife, and he slander separates intimate friends. Proverbs 26:21 like charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife See we who are the gospel redeemed people ought not to be characterized by destructive speech, by division, by dissension. we who are the redeemed are empowered to be able to change in this area beloved in the power of the Spirit of God, by the guidance of His Holy Word, to serve one another through love in the way in which we speak to and about one another. We're able to do that. How beautiful that is. So we must practice self-control because it is a matter of utmost urgency, beloved. We will be held accountable for our words. It reveals something about our spiritual maturity. And we must be careful to practice self-control because of the influence, the powerful impact that our words can have for the good or for evil. And I want to draw out some practical implications from this passage for us that hopefully will be helpful for us. First of all, remember that this is first and foremost a spiritual war. Your pursuit of practicing self-control is a spiritual war. It is a spiritual endeavor. The issue is not just to simply try harder, fix yourself, stop it. It is a spiritual endeavor, beloved. Self-control in any area, including the use of your words, is first of all a fruit of the Spirit, right? Galatians chapter 6 or chapter 5. It is a fruit of the Spirit. The ability to show restraint requires that we be utterly dependent upon the Spirit of God and His Word. You must use God's resources. What resources are those? His Word. Meditating. Reflecting upon His Word. Soaking yourself and saturating yourself in God and His Word. Renewing your mind. And then prayer. Pleading with God and pouring out your heart to God. Oh God, deliver me from destructive speech. Deliver me from... Corrupt speech that tears my brethren down. The means by which God, by His Spirit, affects change in the human heart, beloved, is the Word of God and prayer. So rather than speaking destructive words, focus on the living Word of God. Amen? The living Word of God. And soak in God's Word for spiritual renewal and change from within. I'm not talking about behavior modification. That's my second point. Recognize that you need to declare war on your destructive speech. Recognize that you need to declare war on destructive speech. It is not just I'll let go and let God then if it's a spirit let thing. No, this battle requires your active participation. And you must recognize that it is going to be an all-out war to guard your words, to guard your mouth and what comes out of your mouth. You know why we must be fierce in this battle? Because of the fact that the tongue is untamed and uncontrolled. It's difficult. Look at verse 7. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison, he says. No one can tame the tongue. That is why we must war against it. Because of the difficulty of it. Because a person who is being led by the Spirit of God and being guided by God's Holy Word can have victory in this area. Amen? But it's not going to be easy. That's what James is highlighting here. No one can tame the tongue in your own effort. Not only that, but notice because of the inconsistency of the tongue. It is hard. We must war against this. Verse 9, with it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way, says James. How could it be? How could it be that you worship God, your Lord and Father, and yet at the same time, with the same tongue, you curse men who are made in the likeness of the one that you worship? How could it be? It's almost like James is expressing his outrage. How could it be, beloved? Be consistent. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. It doesn't make sense, James says. Live life consistent. Be whole. Be a person of integrity. That is the bigger, wider theme in the book of James, by the, by the way. Be faithful. Be whole. Be a person of integrity. Live out your profession of faith consistently in your words and in your actions so that it reflects who you are within. Recognize you need to declare war on destructive speech, beloved. Thirdly, remember that this war begins with dealing with your heart. We're not talking about, as I mentioned, behavior modification. Just simply changing the outside. The war is within Our actions, our words, are merely representative of what is in our hearts. Merely representative of what is going on in here. People, nor circumstances, are ultimately the problem. You realize that? It is our hearts. And people and circumstances merely become the trigger, the occasion for our hearts to express themselves through sinful actions and words. Our words and our actions are shaped, beloved, by the motives of the heart. This is why the the gospel is so powerful and glorious, isn't it? It addresses and deals with our sin at the deepest level. The volcano of the heart. Changing us from within. Where Christ comes and rules in our hearts. And brings about fruitfulness in our life as we submit to His Spirit's leading, as we're guided by God's holy word. There is change that takes place. Remember also, fourthly, that this has implications for the way that we treat one another in the context of the church. We can use our tongues, beloved, in the context of the church in very destructive and subtle ways. And I have seen this in many churches. One of the most destructive ways I have witnessed that we can subtly use our words to destroy is by what I call sinful misrepresentation of people to others. It happens when a person in a church has a particular opinion about someone or a particular point of view, and then in conversations they express these things to other people in the church. And maybe if you were the listener you're simply trying to be a friend you want to listen you want to be a good counselor you never affirm their point of view you never affirm their concerns but what do they do they use you later on to build their case they misrepresent you and misrepresent others you know that this is a subtle dangerous form of gossip and slander Sinful misrepresentation? Because we seek to find self-justification for our words and our actions and our opinions? See, people like this are subtle manipulators. The more people they can espouse their views to, the more people they can get on their side, the more justified they feel in their views. You know what this reveals at the end of the day? Sinful Trust, distrust in God. Failing to trust God. On a deeper level, this reveals that you don't trust God. Because why wait for God to vindicate when you can take matters into your own hands and manipulate the situation and use your speech in a corruptive manner to manipulate and to misrepresent? You use people as your sounding board to get what you want in your own end. We have to be so careful, beloved. Failure to control our tongue, whether it's, it's obvious forms of an uncontrolled tongue or subtle ways of, control of, of, of your tongue manifesting sinfulness in this way, through subtle manipulation, sinful misrepresentation, ultimately reveals that you have a trust in God problem. That's what it reveals more than anything else. And this applies to the listener as well. Not just a person spreading strife. If you are the listener in such cases, my encouragement to you would be that you don't just listen and be a sounding board, but that you, at the end of that time, you genuinely care for your brother or sister who's communicating to you their concerns. You listen to the issue, and you make it abundantly clear where you stand on the issue. And not only that but that you make sure that you direct them to what the Bible calls them to do. What does the Bible, at the most basic, obvious level, call a person to do when they have an issue with somebody else? What does the Bible call us to do? Go to your brother. Go to your sister in Christ. Don't run around telling everybody. Don't go tell them after you've talked to 25 people. Talk to your brother or sister. Matthew 18, Galatians chapter 6. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Implied, go to your brother if they're caught in any trespass. Talk to them. It is so basic. God is not confusing in His Word. That is what He's called us to do, beloved. To go to one another. And I would go a step further if you were the listener. I would go and double check that they actually went and did what you told them to do. And I would go a step further than that. I would say this, that they shouldn't be mentioning and running around telling people anymore about that problem if they said that they talked to the person and they resolved it. Oh, Kempis, that's not very loving. That's not very loving. Come on, don't be a stickler. I mean, I just want to be a sounding board for people. My calling is to be a sounding board for everybody. I'm a, a, a tender, loving, listening counselor. mm mm-mm. You may or may not be that, my friend, but I'm telling you right now that... What I'm warning against is people who are always talking to multiple people in the name of wanting counsel in particular areas, but they never somehow get around to speaking to the specific person they have the problems with. They don't get around to do that. It's reasonable. It's reasonable that you would have that that one, two, go-to person, close confidant friend who is mature, who is biblically minded, who is trustworthy to just express your opinion and hear, uh, hear them out, hear what they think about your opinion, and p- a person who loves you enough to tell you the hard things even if you're the one that is wrong. It's okay to have that. But those people, those close confidants in your life, are not to become the substitute for never talking to the person you have an issue with. Otherwise, it doesn't matter how much you excuse it, and if you have 25 close confidants, it's gossip and slander. That's what it is. Amen? You want to talk about destructive impact? It's when people don't go to one another, beloved. And we have to be careful also with the busy little bee syndrome with regards to this issue of an uncontrolled tongue. The person who needs to be on the know about everything in a particular situation. I want to know everything, all the facts. You know what? It's important to ask questions and not assume. Absolutely. It's important to make sure that sin is dealt with in the church. But there are people who use the excuse that they want to help to satisfy some insatiable appetite to be on the know about every little thing under the sun. They're always suspicious, always distrustful of everyone and everything. Beloved, we have to be so careful. We're going to be accountable for what we say and how we listen. To others, how we give hearty approval for slander and gossip when we listen to them and we don't direct them to do what is right, what is biblical. You know what drives all of this? Genuine, biblical, authentic, transparent love for one another. Amen? We who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, who are gospel transformed people, are positioned more than anyone else, to be able to display this kind of authentic Christian kind of love that speaks the truth motivated by love. And sometimes that means saying the hard things to people who slander or gossip, who use destructive speech. John MacArthur has said, true love, true, genuine, authentic love is most concerned with the purity of its object. If you care about your brother and sister, don't be motivated by fear and not say anything if they're characterized by an uncontrolled tongue. Speak up, brother and sister. Speak up because you love, you want what's best for them, right? You want them to grow and be conformed into the image of Christ? Call them in a loving, gentle manner to do what is right. See, you cannot say you love and care for someone and yet go around and destroy them with your words. You can't. Beloved, there is so much hope in the gospel, is there not? To help us have victory in this area. We have been given a new heart. Our heart of stone has been replaced with a heart of flesh. And though we struggle with our hearts and the expression of our hearts through actions and words, Christ can make us whole in this area. Can He not? He's more than able to do that. And I'm so comforted by the fact that there is only one perfect God-man. And I can imitate him. And he can empower me by his spirit to be able to have victory in this area. But it begins, beloved, by acknowledging where you're at in this area. And confessing your sin to the Lord. Agreeing with him about your sin. Call it what it is. It is not just getting somebody else's take, generally. It is sin to run around and talk to multiple people without ever talking to your brother or sister with whom you have an issue with. It's sin. Call it what it is and confess that to the Lord. Say Lord and say, "Lord, forgive me. I know that your answer will always be yes in Christ because of what he has done in his death and resurrection." And ask the Lord, "Plead with God. Lord, help me to grow in this area." Help me to be more concerned, driven by biblical, authentic, Christ-like kind of love for my brother or sister, so that I don't tear them down with my words, but edify them with my speech. Jesus is the ultimate example of this, isn't it? The ultimate example. Only the Son of God perfectly did this. In the midst of his suffering, the Apostle Peter, commenting on Jesus' language, says this in 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 22, He, Jesus, committed no sin, and no deceit was found in His mouth. When they hurled their insults at Him, He did not retaliate. When He suffered, He made no threats. He didn't retaliate. No threats in the midst of the worst kind of injustice. Here is someone in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, a perfect God-man, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who is your high priest, and you can come before Him, beloved, and ask Him for deliverance from the destructive sin of an uncontrolled tongue. He can do it, can He not? Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, Father, I pray that, Lord, we would be loving doers of Your Word. These are hard things and hard messages from James, Lord. But they are messages which call us to put our faith into practice in sins that many times become respectable sins that we tend to ignore. Father, I pray for authenticity within us. I pray for transformed hearts. I pray for men and women in this room to declare war on the sin of an uncontrolled tongue. And I pray for those in here who may not have a relationship with you, Lord, that they may recognize that Christianity is about Christ and a relationship with Christ, by which this exalted Christ can give them power over their sin and no longer be slaves to their sin, and they can find forgiveness for their sins in Christ. I pray that there would be those this morning who would give their lives to you, Lord, that they would repent of their sins, that they would turn from their wickedness, from self-worship, from self-idolatry, and that they would worship their Creator who created them for His glory. And that can happen in and through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and His redemptive work. We ask you all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.